Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. My name is Sean Brady. Today, we're going to talk about the Hyde Regency collapse, which I first heard about as an engineering student. At the time, it was presented as a dire warning of what happens when engineers get it wrong. It took place in Kansas City in 1981, and it certainly is one of the most distressing structural engineering failures I've ever heard of. The numbers are disturbing. 114 people died, over 200 were injured, and it took the emergency rooms of 17 hospitals to treat them. It's 7.05 on the evening of the 17th of July, 1981, and a tea dance is in full swing in the lobby of the Hyde Regency Hotel. Now, this lobby is an impressive open space. It's four stories high, and it has a number of walkways suspended from the lobby roof. There's one single walkway on the third floor, and then beside it, there's another pair of walkways on the fourth and second floors, one directly above the other. On the night of the failure, there are between 1,500 and 2,000 people at the tea dance. Some of them are standing on the walkways, while the rest were in the lobby below. One of them, Mark Williams, walks up to the bar to buy a scotch and water. At the same time, Cindy Paulson, who's a hostess in the hotel's terrace restaurant overlooking the lobby, takes a moment to look out the hotel window. She's checking the time on the bank clock across the street, and she's looking past the upper walkway on the fourth floor. Suddenly, as she's watching, the fourth and second floor walkways begin to fall. At the bar below, Mark Williams knows something is wrong when he hears a loud crack sound above the noise of the music and the revellers. He thinks about moving, but it's too late. When the walkways strike the crowded lobby floor, a cloud of dust billows up towards Paulson, and that's when she remembers her father was in the lobby. 42 blocks south, Dr Joseph Wackerley is training for the upcoming rugby season. He's just finished running 11 flights of stairs at the Baptist Medical Centre, Now he's an emergency physician and he's a former director of Kansas City's emergency medical system. He's returning to the emergency room when he gets a call from dispatchers. They say, we need you at the height. It takes him 12 minutes to get there and he immediately starts treating the people who've made it outside. Then a paramedic grabs his arm and says, you need to get inside. He enters the lobby and he says what he found there was like a war. That same evening, Jack Gillum returns home with his wife at 7.45pm and finds his telephone ringing. Now, he's an engineer and his firm had been the engineers on the height. Gillum himself was what's called the engineer of record, so he was ultimately responsible for the structure. On the phone is Herb Duncan, one of the principals at the architecture firm that designed the hotel. Duncan says, there's been a collapse at the height. He goes on to say that one of the walkways has collapsed and several may have been killed and many injured. Then Duncan asks Gillam a really disturbing question. He wants to know the weight of the individual walkway units. The rescue workers need to figure out the lifting equipment they need to get to the victims. Gillam is shocked. He gives Duncan the information and then contacts his project engineer who worked on the height. He also calls a couple of other key people from his firm and they manage to charter a plane to take them to Kansas City. They arrive at the height at around 11.15pm that night and find utter devastation. It becomes obvious to them that they can't do much to help with the rescue, so they set about trying to figure out what caused the collapse. They discover that the rods that supported the uppermost walkway from the ceiling are essentially undamaged. They're still hanging there. 
Then they inspect the failed walkways and quickly figure out the cause of the failure. The walkway connections, which should have been attached to the steel rods, are badly deformed. This deformation has allowed the rods to pull through the connections. And once this happened, there was nothing to stop the walkways falling to the lobby floor. By this stage it's late, and Gillum gets back to his hotel at 3am. He does some quick calculations, and they show that the connection was grossly inadequate. It was almost bound to fail. He describes trying to get some sleep, but he's numb with despair and grief. Now, if you're interested in the details of these connections, then by all means get on Google. Search for height regency walkway collapse and you'll find plenty of pictures and diagrams showing the connection details. But the key thing is that the collapse occurred because of a doubling of load on these connections. And this doubling of load was the result of a design change. So the original design was a single rod running from the ceiling to the top walkway, with the same rod then continuing downwards to carry the second walkway. The change was that this rod was split in half, with one half running from the lobby ceiling to the top walkway, then with a second rod running from the top walkway to the bottom walkway. And it was the splitting of this rod that results in the doubling of load on the top walkway connection. Now Henry Petrowski, the US writer and engineer, provides a really good illustration of how this doubling occurs. He starts by comparing the original design of the walkways to two people gripping a rope that's hanging from the ceiling. Each person is gripping the rope with their hands, one hanging directly above the other. And as long as each person has a good enough grip on the rope to support their own weight, they won't fall. But here's where the design change dramatically alters the situation. This change is essentially the same as cutting the rope immediately below the top person, then tying that rope around the top person's leg which means that the top person is now carrying their own weight as well as the weight of the person below. This is where the doubling of load comes from. The top person loses their grip because of the extra load, exactly like the walkway connection, and this person, along with the person below, falls to the floor. But the really disturbing part of this failure is that the connection, both the original single rod connection and the as-built two rod connection, were not actually designed. Somehow, a critical connection detail, a detail that the structural integrity of the walk was depended upon, had managed to make its way through the entire design and construction process without being checked by a structural engineer. And the reason is human factors at their very worst. The original connection was sketched by Gillum's firm, but the design of this connection was being carried out by the fabricator. This was common practice at the time. But the fabricator phoned Gillum's firm and said that the original detail of the single rod was impractical and suggested using two rods, which was the detail that was actually installed. Now, while still on the call, the engineer's project manager did some quick calculations and said the change was acceptable. But he asked the fabricator to submit the proposed change through the formal channels for approval. Now, the fabricator didn't do this, but instead drew up the as-built two-rod detail. Then the fabrication firm won an unrelated major project, and because they needed to free up capacity to deliver this new project, they subcontracted to another party the work remaining on producing the drawings for the walkway. Now because these drawings include the new two-rod connection, the subcontractor simply assumed it had been designed. The drawings were finalised, the detail was fabricated and installed. And as with most failures, there were warning signs that could have raised the alarm that were missed. These connections began to deform very soon after installation. They were noticed by the owner's inspector, who then reported them, but the report was never followed up. Then a workman who was installing plasterboard on the walkways also noticed the deformations, but thought nothing of it. 
and once this plasterboard was put in place, the connection was hidden, and any other chance of identifying the issue was lost. But this would take months to unravel, and what awaited the emergency services in the lobby on the night of the 17th of July, 1981, would stay with them for years afterwards. When Dr. Wackerly entered the lobby, the scene he found was confronting in the extreme. Over 63 tonne of walkway had collapsed into the lobby. There were bodies, both dead and alive, entwined beneath them. Wackerly said there was a lot of screaming. Power lines had broken and were swinging above the lobby, arcing electricity. A water line had ruptured and there were several inches of water on the floor. He says severed body parts were floating in the water. Wackerly takes control of the rescue and directs those able to walk to leave the hotel. He then begins triaging the survivors, but realises there are many more people requiring attention than there are resources to assist them. So those fatally wounded are told they're going to die and given pain medication. There's simply not enough time to free them. This task really troubles some of the rescue workers. Wackerly himself says he remembers every single time he did it, and he says to Disty he prays he did the best he could for each person. Among the debris walks Cindy Paulson, the hostess from the restaurant above. She's searching for her father, and she's comforting victims as she walks through the lobby. She gets outside the hotel and finds her mother, and her mother tells her that her father is still alive. He'd actually left the hotel just before the collapse. Paulson can't believe it. Then she sends her mother home and stays on to help with the rescue. As the rescue continues, rescuers are forced to dismember the dead to get to the living. Some people need amputation to freedom. A number of rescue workers find this work too traumatic and have to leave. Dr. Wackerly speaks to one man, telling him his leg will have to be amputated. The man refuses. Wackerly returns some time later and finds the man deteriorating, but he's now agreeing to amputation. Wackerly summons the surgeon, who frees the man with a chainsaw, but the man dies shortly afterwards. Throughout all this, Mark Williams, the guest who'd been buying the scotch and water earlier, lies beneath the rubble. He's trapped in an 18-inch high pocket. Both his legs are dislocated from his pelvis, and his left leg is twisted over his torso, which leaves his left foot and his right ear. Two people are trapped near him. They're slowly dying. Water from a ruptured pipe overhead is flowing through the rubble around him, and he's afraid he'll drown before he's rescued. He waits. Most of the victims are freed in the first hour by rescue workers using forklifts, pneumatic drills and concrete cutting saws. Some take longer to free than others. Seven hours after the collapse, the rescuers pull a man, woman and child out of the rubble. By 3am, two Belger cranes arrive. They smash through the front windows of the hotel to hang over the fallen walkways. The rescuers begin lifting the slabs and looking beneath them. Eventually someone hears Mark Williams shouting. Using pneumatic drills, they break through the slab above him, almost stabbing him in the process. He's finally freed at 4.30am, the last to be freed alive. Later, rescuers lift the final slab of concrete and discover 31 bodies beneath it. This collapse resulted in 114 fatalities. 111 people died in the lobby, and three more died of their injuries afterwards. The legal battles were immense. At one stage, claims under review totaled 3 billion US dollars. A single class action settled for 143 million dollars. 
The 72 rescue workers sued for the trauma they suffered during the rescue effort, and their claim of 150 million was settled for 500,000. Gillam, the engineer of record, along with his project engineer, were convicted of gross negligence, misconduct, and unprofessional conduct in the practice of engineering. They had their professional licenses revoked in many states, but no criminal charges were filed because of a lack of evidence. But Gillam didn't retreat from the public eye. He's instead spoken about the collapse on many occasions. He says his objective is to scare the daylights out of engineers about what can go wrong. At the American Society of Civil Engineers' Second Forensic Congress in 2000, Gillam presented a paper on the collapse. When he finished, he received a standing ovation from the audience. He closed his paper with an expression of regret and a reminder to the profession of the importance of discussing such failures. He said, There's hardly a day that goes by that I don't think about the height collapse, the lives that were lost or marred forever, the relatives that lost their loved ones, and the effect it has had on Kansas City, the construction industry, and everyone connected with the project. My hope is that we as a profession can and will continue to learn, practice, disseminate, change and adapt procedures and policies that will prevent a tragedy like this from occurring again. 